Coming up on Tech Nation, Jamie Suskind. You may know him from his contributions in the New York Times, The Times, and Wired. He's here today with the Digital Republic on freedom and democracy in the 21st century. Then in biotech, you've heard forever about stem cells. But have you heard about fibroblasts? Yes, fibroblasts. Dr. Hamid Koja, the Chief Scientific Officer of Fibrobiologics, is here to talk about their fibroblast programs in such diverse conditions as degenerative disc disease, multiple sclerosis, and diabetic foot ulcers. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In a 2013 Tech Nation interview, Poe Bronson talked about his book, Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing. He cites numerous scientific studies, and in many, the scientists ask people to chew sponges. I asked him, what's up with that? Scholars, researchers are really interested in measuring the telltale biomarkers of competition and performance. And this technology has gotten sophisticated enough now that you can get a little saliva uh, and you can spit into a little tube or into a cup. But the easiest way to do it today is to use a salivette and you chew the salivette like a piece of chewing gum for 30 seconds and you spit it out. And the scholars will measure all sorts of biomarkers off just this little saliva test. It could be as simple as something that's looking for like alpha amylase, a broad marker for sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight response activity, or you can get really specific with it, you know, down to uh, minute changes in testosterone levels to uh, the whole neuroendocrine cascade that uh, works through your body. At the very beginning of the book, uh, there was a, a scholar out of Germany who did this in the wine country, and she convinced a whole bunch of people to go skydive for the very first time. And they jumped out of a plane at 10,000 feet solo, you know, chewing a salivette to see exactly what was going on in their body exactly <laughs> the moment that of moment. terror. Recorded. Scaring them to death was exactly the point of I'd her swallow it. That's the problem. And, and yeah, and the, and the markers said these people are freaked out, right? But what was interesting is she made them do it uh, three times, sometimes three times over a couple days or, or, or even on the same day or even in a single hour. And what she found is that you acclimate to free-falling towards Earth at 120 miles an hour very quickly, that even your second jump, the stress level goes down by a third, and on your third jump, it's like driving in traffic, uh, that you acclimate to this very well. But meanwhile, there was this other scholar just a little north, and he was studying ballroom dancing competitions, and he was having amateur ballroom dancers who were there for the regional dance competition chew little salivettes, and no matter how much experience they'd had, whether they'd had one-year experience or five years or 10 years or 15 years, no matter what, their stress response was just as high as anybody else, pretty much close to, but not quite, a, a first parachute jump, which is interesting. So why can people acclimate to jumping out of an airplane at 10,000 feet, going 120 miles an hour towards Earth, but can't acclimate 
to the unique stress of competing, because it wasn't the dancing that was causing the stress. It was the being judged. It was the sense of winning and losing, the sense of having to avoid making a single mistake. And that is very interesting because we've heard for quite a while now that it takes 10 years of practice to become an expert, to become an authority in something, to be great at it. And we felt something was missing from that success formula. That's not wrong, just that there's an additive thing, which is that we're not judged on how we practice. We're judging how we actually perform when the band is playing, the lights are bright, and the music is going. And what it turns out is that while we all have this enormous stress flood when we have to compete, we interpret it differently. Our our bodies do. Our bodies physiologically interpret it differently, but our minds interpret it differently. That if you ask expert performers, professional athletes or professional musicians and the like, they all get really anxious and stressed out before a big performance. But they see that as beneficial. To them, it excites them, it awakens them, it gets them ready. While uh, novice performers feel that same sensation but think it's damaging their performance. And learning to go from seeing stress as harmful to seeing stress as beneficial is crucial to sort of really learning to manifest competitive fire when you have to. You might know Poe Bronson from his other books, including The First 20 Million is Always the Hardest, Nurture Shock, and What Should I Do With My Life? I was able to speak with Poe about Top Dog, the science of winning and losing on Tech Nation in 2013. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Jamie Siskind. What is digital technology doing to our society? He's here today with the Digital Republic on freedom and democracy in the 21st century. Then in biotech, Dr. Hamid Koja from Fibrobiologics gives us a primer on fibroblasts, which turn out to be everywhere in our bodies. He'll also review their programs in degenerative disc disease, multiple sclerosis, and diabetic foot ulcers. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Jamie Siskind. Jamie, welcome back to Tech Nation. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to, to be back with you, Moira. Now, of the many things I learned from your book that caused me to stop and think, we all learned in school that ancient Athens was a democracy with its forum and senators. What I didn't know was that its laws were passed down entirely by mouth. Now, in this age where the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act runs 730 pages. Just describe for us how Athenian democracy worked. (laughs) Well, there was obviously a time in the very distant past of Athens where the laws were oral rather than written down. And the legend has it that this lawgiver called Draco 
uh, came up with the idea that the constitution of Athens should be carved into a, a, a spot where the local citizenry could see it. Uh, I'm sure most of this is apocryphal, to be honest, but uh, that was when we saw the, the emergence of written law. But of course, we know that the emergence, the change of a society from being a, a, an oral-based society to a, a writing-based society, and then to a printing-based society, and then now to a digital-based society, we know that each of these changes in the way that we store and communicate information yields enormous social changes as well. Now, the first sentence of your book is a central question for all of us. And you write, this book is about how freedom and democracy can survive and even flourish in a world transformed by digital technology. In what ways is technology the enemy of freedom and democracy? I'm never going to describe it as the enemy. But what I am going to say is that technologies carry power and they have political influence on society and that sometimes that is uh, useful and helpful and is consistent with our values and other times it isn't. Sometimes they make society less democratic or erode the quality of our democracy and what the book is about is about trying to get to a place where we not only have extraordinarily uh, exciting and powerful inventions but that we can be sure that they're being channeled at least partly for the good of humankind generally, rather than just for our kind of consumer interests or indeed for the commercial interests of those who own and control them. Um, I can give you some kind of summaries when it comes to freedom and democracy about how technologies work in these ways, but that's the big thesis. I think it's important to take this perspective that uh, digital technology, it's just everywhere. We see it. We know it's close at hand, even if we haven't installed it ourselves. It's everywhere. And yet, you write, technology's power is invisible. And if we don't get that idea that, that technology is one thing, but its power is separate and, and it's frequently invisible to us. That's right. I mean, a big part of the book is trying to get people to think differently about technology. And I think for 20 years, at least, we've been thinking of it principally from the perspective of consumers. Whereas my argument is the digital is political. Every new invention, every new development should be treated with the same skeptical eye and scrutiny that we bring to other forms of power in society. Now, you, you put your finger on something which throughout history has created unbelievable havoc, and that is unaccountable power. How do you connect digital technology to unaccountable power? That's right. So the book is called The Digital Republic. And the big idea at the center of it is what I call digital republicanism. Now, it's important for me to make clear that when I speak of republicanism, I'm not talking about the capital R republicanism of today's Republican Party. Uh, indeed, that party has moved pretty far from the small r Republican tradition from which it comes. The small r Republican tradition that I'm talking about reaches back thousands of years. And it's basically a political philosophy which opposes the ability of any group in society to exert unaccountable or arbitrary power over another. So for instance, uh, ancient Republicans opposed the very idea of kings, not just bad kings. So they would complain even when the king was doing things that they liked, because they knew that that king had the power, if he wanted to, to act in a way that was tyrannical or unpleasant. And through the centuries, we've seen the small-r Republican ideal pop up in all kinds of different contexts. So 
Abolitionists, for instance, they argued against the institution of slavery itself, rather than just hoping for kinder masters. People in the labor movement argued for workplace protections rather than just better bosses. Uh, feminists argued for equal rights in marriage rather than just kinder husbands. There are, there are all kinds of contexts and ways in which the Republican ideal of opposing unaccountable power has popped up. And all I'm doing is extending it to the great imbalance of power that exists in this century, which is the the imbalance that is created when one group in society owns and controls very powerful technologies. And so for me, and this is really an important point to make early in the interview, this isn't another book, you know, attacking Facebook or complaining about Elon Musk. The problem isn't these individual companies or people. The problem is the idea of someone like Elon Musk, who can, by virtue of his command of great economic resources, purchase a great deal of political power through the acquisition of something like Twitter. And of course, some people might like Musk, some people might not like him. For the Republican, for me, that doesn't matter. What matters is that whoever owns and controls these things has the capacity to act in a way that affects our basic liberties and the quality of democracy. And that is to be opposed. Now, with respect to social media, some say it's over-censored, while others say it's under-moderated. Some of that has to do with your opinion, your perspective on the same statements that are made. How do you make a law or a regulation that accommodates that in, in a democratic society? Well, I agree and I disagree. I agree that there is significant difference even between reasonable people about what ought to be done on social media, whether certain things should be censored, whether certain things should be blocked, etc., what I don't agree about, though, is that it's a matter of kind of personal opinion, that this is purely subjective. Actually, I think questions about how we structure and govern social media are essentially questions about our approach to the philosophy of free speech. What is the point of a system of free expression in a society? Now, listen, different free countries are going to give different answers to this question. The answer that you give in the United States under the First Amendment and its jurisprudence is very different from the answer that we give in the United Kingdom, which is in turn quite different from what the answer you might get in France or Germany. And that's okay. I don't think people in France or Germany should be subject to American First Amendment norms, nor do I think that people in America should be subject to Australian or Canadian norms that are alien to them. This is all a long and roundabout way of saying that your use of the word democratic is the most important one. These are decisions which are political in nature. We shouldn't just be leaving them to companies themselves to decide, to set the boundaries and borders of free expression. Countries themselves have to come up through the democratic process or processes with the right parameters and guidance for how they want their speech environment to be governed. That's how we do it when it comes to broadcast regulation. It's how we do it when it comes to newspaper regulation. And in the future, it's how we'll have to do it when it comes to social media regulation. You're certainly free to express your opinion. Should you be free to express disinformation? Again, different societies will disagree. My, my own view, and you know, I suspect the view of a lot of people in this country, is that certain types of speech are afforded less protection of the law than others. And so, so, you know, freedom of speech, even in the United States, in fact, is not unfettered. We outlaw fraudulent speech. We outlaw certain forms of violent speech. We outlaw misleading advertising. And yes, I think in circumstances where certain forms of misinformation could lead to wide scale 
social harm, including you know serious medical difficulties for large amounts of the population, which impact not only on the people suffering those medical difficulties, but on other people whose access to medical resources, shared medical resources is diminished, then yeah, I think a free society might well take the view that that kind of speech should not be afforded the same kind of protection in the law as other forms of speech. There's then the question about what you do about it, though, because one kind of harsh answer might be to make platforms take it down. A more moderate answer might be to require that platforms' algorithms don't amplify such things. Another might be to say that only once they've reached a certain level of virality should they engage any kind of censorship or interference. We can take a nuanced approach to it, but I actually have no difficulty in saying that harmful health misinformation, for instance, uh, is a form of speech which should be afforded less respect and protection by the law than others. And actually, that shouldn't be controversial in almost any legal system in the world. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Jamie Siskind. With work in law, history, and politics, you may be familiar with his efforts in the New York Times, The Times, and Wired, among others. Or you may know him from his book, which we discussed in a 2018 Tech Nation interview, Future Politics, Living Together in a World Transformed by Tech. He's back with The Digital Republic on Freedom and Democracy in the 21st Century. Well, as many young people here in the San Francisco Bay Area do after they're out of college is uh, they get a job at YouTube. This is a job that everybody knows lasts 11 months. <laughs> then they don't have, they're not hired permanently. And they're the people that review uh, videos that are flagged. And I mean, it's a, it's a pretty intense job. My son and his friends were among them. And I remember uh, at this point in time, they were reviewing such things as IEDs on a remote roadside in Afghanistan, reviewing, you know, riots in other places. And I was so impressed with how they went through this, basically an editorial meeting about what was gratuitous, what was too much, how many should they have, you know, all the things that you would see in a professional editorial meeting. And so I thought, oh, perhaps they're the editors of our future. And then I realize, as you point out, they can only make decisions to the extent the software will permit them to. The software is another level of control here. I and mean, that's right. I mean, first things first, we know increasingly that platforms like YouTube are responsible for, yeah, I think editorial is a useful word, editorial decisions about the flow of information in society what information is permitted and what isn't, what is up and what is down, what is seen as true or false, what is seen as right or wrong, what is seen as salient or what is ignored and falls to the bottom of the pile. And of course, important though your son and his pals' roles were, the real action there is taking place behind closed boardrooms uh, where YouTube's editorial team or, or, or commercial team or legal team are going to be taking decisions about these matters. My own view is that these shouldn't just be commercial matters. There should be room for disagreements, of course, but the decisions they're taking are not just about affecting the health of YouTube's business, they're affecting society at large. Uh, and so, you know, I, I regard that as kind of unsatisfactory. The point you make about code is an interesting one. And I know that you and I share a friend, I think, in Lawrence Lessig, who's been writing about code and its ability to enforce rules effectively for some decades now. And, you know, one of the things that I observe about 
interacting with platforms like YouTube or Twitter is that these platforms don't allow for much dissent in terms of, you know, disagreeing with their rules. So if you recall before the last presidential election, there was a big hoo-ha about the fact that Twitter's software would literally not permit you to tweet an article from the New York Post about Hunter Biden. And this was understandably a source of real controversy, not least um, because the reason it wasn't being permitted was that it breached a policy on hacked materials rather than anything to do with the veracity of the content itself. And of course, when you try to, when you, when you press tweet, the tweet just doesn't send. You can't negotiate, you can't compromise, you can't really appeal. There's nothing you can do. And so when we interact with digital technologies, we're very much subject to the rules that are coded into them. And social media is no exception to that. And you point out that the code itself, the people who create the code, the companies that create the code, they can be regulated to say, we don't pick out the most salacious, we don't pick out the most controversial, and then amplify that. We can control that in the code. Yeah, I mean, what I want to blast away is this idea that tech is somehow this ungovernable space where ordinary rules and laws don't apply. We already see it. I mean, take, for example, the question of hate speech. In Germany or France, it can be, in some circumstances, illegal to show a picture of a swastika, right? So if you tweet a picture of a swastika in France, Twitter is going to block that image if you are a viewer in France or Germany. Uh, if you send the same tweet in America, it's unlikely to do so because the rules are enforced differently there. I mean, Facebook or whatever is going to be very different in Turkey than it is in the United Kingdom. So these companies already uh, change their rules according to the laws of the local jurisdiction in which they're operating. It's just that they don't want to and it's inconvenient for them. People often say to me, why can't we figure this all out in advance? And I always refer them to what I call the innovation cascade. And when I describe it, anyone can see why making appropriate laws are a challenge in advance. I mean, it says that first a technology is created and then we or or we have a new application for for an existing technology and then people start using it. And if it's only a few, it's like, well, we just let them go. Uh, but if it's a lot and it's uh, a whole bunch of people are using it, then society gets involved and makes social policy, which is actually quite informal. But it says, don't read your emails at the dinner table or in hmm. church, as an example. That doesn't need a law. That's a societal decision. Um, but then finally, it makes some laws. It says, uh, everybody should have one or it's terrible or it should be moderated in this way. So it takes time to get from the experience and the fact of the technology to creating the law in most cases. But could we do it in advance or when can we do it? When should we do it? Oh, these are I mean, that's a great observation because it's it's an observation both about technology and about democracy. The point about technology is that it often moves quicker than our social institutions are able to respond. But the point about democracy is you often don't know really what the kind of settled will of the people is on a particular issue until it's been around for a little while. And often where a society ends up on a particular political issue will be quite different from its initial reactions. So, you know, a bit of a politician's answer, but I'm sure there are some kinds of technology where we can 
try in advance to formulate what we would like them to behave like. So for instance, you know, there's some really interesting thinking going on about self-driving cars and the, and, and the kind of ethical governance of them. And I think we're basically able to imagine what a self-driving car, the kind of moral choices that it might face, not least because we're quite used to the experience of driving ourselves. Uh, there are others where there are kind of new and nascent technologies where the implications are kind of mind-blowing and where society is really playing catch-up. Now, you alluded to this earlier. When we talk about freedom, some people chafe at the idea that there are regulations as if law and regulations limit freedom. When do laws and regulations limit freedom and when do they enable freedom? I don't believe that a world without laws is a free world. A world without laws is a lawless world by definition. And in the lawless world, what happens is that the strong prey upon the weak and the loudest voice and the strongest arm and the most violent uh, and the most aggressive win. That's not a society that I would like to live in. What laws do is that they impose wise constraints where they're working well. They impose wise constraints on us, which enlarge the overall scope of our freedom, but also give people the chance for equal freedom to make sure that everyone is equally free and not just the strong and the tough. So I would resist always the idea that law is by its nature an abrogation of liberty. I think a lot of liberty comes from good laws. Now, of course, too much law or bad laws can make us less free. And uh, we should always be aware of that. But the libertarian impulse to scrap more and more laws, it doesn't make us, it doesn't make us more free. It, it just makes the world more wild and dangerous for those who are most willing to be violent in controlling it. Now, uh, in writing about transparency, and I, I love the title of the section, Transparency About Transparency, I remembered that the U.S. laws, they permit companies to collect far more data about individuals than those in the U.K. and the E.U. In what ways are they different? Oh, I mean, America is it's really hard to explain how how much of an outlier the USA is when it comes to the the governance of data. There are some rules governing the collection of data, but once data has been lawfully gov uh, gathered, it's basically a free-for-all as to what might be done with it. There are some sectoral uh, exceptions like healthcare and education, but by and large, once you've got a database or a bucket of data, you can pretty much do with it whatever you like. I think America is the only, the USA is the only advanced democracy now which doesn't have a general data protection law. So that is to say a, a law governing how data may be, how personal data may be used in all contexts. And what it means is that in, in the States, you have this enormous, enormous intermediary industry of data brokers who buy and hoover up data from all, from all kinds of sources, whether, wherever it's gathered, and sell it on to the, the people who are willing to pay for it, which are sometimes corporations and are quite often also the US government. And uh, you know, given what can be done with data these days in terms of understanding and predicting human behavior, it allows for a, an insight into the human condition that is far more profound than any political leader will have enjoyed in the in the centuries of recorded history. And it, there are some states in the United States which are passing their own uh, laws now to try and rectify the situation. They are to be credited with that. 
But at the federal level, there's very, very little. I'm speaking with Jamie Siskind, the author of The Digital Republic on Freedom and Democracy in the 21st Century. We'll talk more after a break. Biotech Nation podcasts individually can be found at biotechnation.com and separately subscribe through your favorite podcasters, including Amazon. Podcasts of Whole Tech Nation programs continue to be available on NPR One and other podcast outlets. In the second half of our show, Dr. Hamid Koja from Fibro Biologics in Houston joins me to talk about their work in fibroblasts from degenerative disc disease to multiple sclerosis to diabetic foot ulcers and more. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Jamie Suskind, the author of The Digital Republic on Freedom and Democracy in the 21st Century. In your 2018 book, Future Politics, you wrote, Much of the future anticipated in these pages will probably never come to pass, while other developments, utterly unseen, will emerge to surprise us instead. Well, other than a global pandemic, <laughs> that to the side, you didn't see that coming. Um, what has surprised you since you wrote Future Politics some five years ago? Good question. So I, I don't think I would have anticipated the explosion in crypto activity uh, and in particular cryptocurrencies, which were, to be fair, you know, were already on the rise in 2016, 2017 when I was writing that book but the kind of mainstreamization of it and the development of nfts and the like i I, again i sort of i was aware of it as a nascent phenomenon but i i wouldn't have been expected it to become as um dominant as it has and then there are other areas where progress has perhaps been slower than you might have expected i think i probably would have expected to see more self-driving cars on the streets by now Um, I probably would have expected to be further along in artificial, in virtual reality or metaverse technology, although, you know, Facebook are really having a crack at it now. Um, 
there hasn't been an enormous leap forward in quantum computing yet. That will be a game changer when it happens. But otherwise, you know, I would say that the same three big trends have continued that I sort of predicted when I was writing Future Politics. Our systems are becoming more increasingly capable. Artificial intelligence and machine learning systems are increasingly able to do things which we thought only humans could do and in some cases can do them better. Look, for instance, at the language generation models and the image generation models like DALI. Those are extraordinary and have come, up, come on in leaps and bounds in just the last few years. The second is the increasing datafication of society. That's basically not slowed down. And the third is what I call increasingly integrated technology, the idea that not just in this realm of cyberspace, but that all around us, more and more of our actions and interactions and transactions will be mediated through technology. That's all continued. And I think it's probably all accelerating. Well, Jamie, thank you for coming in. You know, you're always welcome on Tech Nation. So we, we hope to see you again soon. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. My guest today is Jamie Siskind. The book is The Digital Republic on Freedom and Democracy in the 21st Century. It's published by Pegasus. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. We've all heard about stem cells and their fantastic ability to turn into any kind of cell, replacing those which need repair. But have you heard about fibroblasts? They're everywhere in our body and they have similar capabilities. Dr. Hamid Koja is the Chief Scientific Officer of Fibrobiologics. Well, Dr. Koja, welcome to Biotech Nation. Thank you very much, Moira. It's a pleasure being on. Now, over the years, we've heard plenty about stem cells and how they regenerate tissues and organs. But there's another cell called a fibroblast that we that can also generate tissues and organs. What are fibroblasts? Where are they in the body? And how are they different from stem cells? Yes. Uh, well, fibroblasts are one of the most prevalent cells in the human body. They're basically what gives our body substance and uh, what keeps our body and organs uh, and tissues together. Uh, they're very prevalent. So as compared to stem cells, uh, uh, which you just mentioned earlier, uh, they are, uh, in, in terms of abundance, they're about a ratio of 10,000 to 1 to 15,000 to one regarding, uh, depending on the tissue type that you're looking at. So they're more easier to obtain. Uh, they're more economical because they cost less to obtain and they're less, um, if, you, if you think of in terms of uh, obtaining uh, stem cells, whether it's from bone marrow or fat tissue, uh, it can be fairly, uh, it's, it requires a surgical uh, procedure to do that, whereas with uh, uh, with fibroblasts, that's not necessarily uh, surgical. Now, I, I said regenerating tissues and organs. What other things do they do in the body? Well, uh, aside from being able to um, differentiate or or uh, <clears throat> or change to other uh, tissue types, 
Uh, fibroblasts, much like uh, stem cells, can also regulate the immune system. And uh, so that means they can regulate the immune system to make it more efficient, uh, to fight certain diseases, to reduce the propensity of autoimmune disorders, uh, etc. So it has uh, that function as well. But aside from that, those two uh, functionalities, it also has the function, and that has been shown in publications, that it can help recruit stem cells to sites that are required. So uh, fibroblasts have serve many, many uh, functions which uh, are similar to what's done with stem cells, but in, uh, on quite a few uh, functions, they actually serve more um, in our systems than stem cells. Now, Fibrobiologics has been working in this area for quite some time, enough time to have 150 patents in fibroblast development. So you, you, we know you guys have been hard at work. Uh, and you're the only company, to my knowledge, working with fibroblasts as treatments, human treatments. So uh, let's go into some of those because you are in human clinical trials. And I'm thinking we might start with something called degenerative disc disease. What is it? What are you doing there? And and where are you in the in the human clinical trial space? Yes, degenerative disc disease. It's a very prominent disorder that occurs very widely in uh, uh, in our species. Uh, and uh, what happens is basically over time, uh, the, the intervertebral discs, uh, which are made up of cartilage in between your um, uh, uh, vertebral uh, spinal column, it, it tends to get compacted. And uh, over time, it does can degenerate depending on activity and also uh, genetic uh, predisposition. Uh, so it, once that is done, it, it tends to impede and uh, um, nerve transfer through your spinal cord, so causing pain, but also it, it, to a certain extent it can cause paralysis uh, in certain patients in terms of uh, which nerve is being impacted. So it, it is a, a very uh, a debilitating uh, disorder, uh, which, uh, which uh, we hope to cure or treat uh, with fibroblasts. Now, I know you've completed phase one and you're entering phase two, uh, which means you've been approved to go forward uh, with this. Um, let me ask you a couple of things. Are we talking about an injection or a pill? What are we talking about? How do you get new fibroblasts into a body? Right. So for for our phase one uh, trial, we did uh, carry out um, direct injection of the fibroblast into the affected area uh, or degenerated area of the disc. Uh, so the, the the goal is to not only use the immune regulation capability of fibroblasts to reduce the inflammation, thereby reduce the pain and, and requirement for utilizing a lot of opiates to reduce uh, pain. But also we're looking at, at, uh, at the possibility of using the fibroblasts so that they could change over time to uh, cartilage cells and build up that degenerated tissue so uh, to increase the disc height and, and reduce the pain um, that is uh, uh, caused by the degenerative disc. Now, what exactly did you do in phase one? 
Well, with, uh, at phase one, what we did was uh, the purpose of the phase one clinical trial is for safety, but we also looked at efficacy outcomes. So in that trial, we recruited 21 patients, three different groups uh, injected with uh, one of the groups was injected with fibroblasts uh, directly into the affected area of the disc that we had identified with an MRI. Uh, previous to their recruitment, uh, and and then we monitored the patients uh, for um, a year so far. So what we're looking at is we're looking at the data. First of all, in terms of the safety, uh, we can certainly say that there was no, there were no adverse events noted. So safety-wise, I think we are very good. But in terms of efficacy, we're looking at the data, and uh, we're uh, it, it's looking promising. Now. If I look at my notes, it says uh, you did this over two years. You did MRIs at six months and, and 12, 12 months. months and to watch that. You know, I many people listening may not understand or some people may not understand since phase one is looking simply for safety to give to a yes. human. Um, your phase one might last just a couple weeks. Took the pill. Everything's fine. No adverse events. You're looking at two years for a phase one. That is unusual. Yeah, because uh, for several reasons, right? We're injecting a cell, so we wanted to make sure that these cells re remain in place and do not uh, interfere uh, in the disc. So we wanted to make sure that it doesn't uh, impact the degradation of the disc adversely, to, to, in other words, to make it worse. Uh, we also wanted to make sure that there were no tumorigenicity or toxicity involved in that as well. And in terms of the longer monitoring period, uh, that was basically done for efficacy reasons. We wanted to see the, uh, the outcome in terms of, are the, is it impacting positively the height of the disc is it is it being continuous in its uh, um, impact on inflammation reduction? So uh, that's the reason for the longer period, and also um, cartilage. Uh, the discs are in a very harsh environment, right? They're impacted by uh, uh, very high amounts of pressure. Uh, lack of uh, sufficient oxygen. So in terms of cell growth, uh, it's a very harsh environment. So you need the longer period to monitor any growth or any differentiation or change of these fibroblasts into cartilage cells. And and so you're taking the results, not just to see if there's you know, some positive outcomes, because sometimes we get that in right away in phase one, but you're using that to design your phase two, do you anticipate that will be two years as well, or must that be longer? No, phase two clinical trial will have to be monitored that long because from previous studies or previous trials done by other companies in, in the same degenerative disc disease field, uh, monitoring periods about two years. And, it, and if you're looking at rebuilding or regenerating tissue, uh, specifically cartilage, you'll have to monitor for that long because it, it is a very slow process. And you will have more sub oh, of course. More subjects. Uh -huh. Yes, we will have a significantly higher number of subjects for phase two clinical trial. Now, in what feels like a completely different disease, multiple sclerosis, MS, I know you're working there. 
first of all, uh, remind us what is multiple sclerosis and what are you attempting to do with fibroblasts? Yes. So multiple sclerosis is an autoimmune disorder and uh, not, no one yet is certain what causes it. Uh, there, there doesn't seem to be a genetic predominant predetermination for uh, getting it, uh, but there has been some publications recently that shows that um, infection by Epstein-Barr virus uh, might be a, uh, a source. So that remains to be seen, and we're looking at publications. But basically, what happens in multiple sclerosis is your uh, immune cells begin attacking the oligodendrocytes, uh, which form the layer that protects uh, the, it's called the myelin sheet that protects the neurons. Uh, it protects the, uh, the, the nerve um, signals uh, going from one neuron to the next. So when your immune system destroys the oligodendrocytes and removes this protective shield, it impacts the nerve transmission. Uh, so over time, it can be very uh, um, debilitating in terms of it, and it can impact cognitive skills, but it can also uh, um, impact uh, uh, motor um, skills as well. And now what are you attempting to do with the fibroblasts? So what we're attempting to do with fibroblasts in our phase zero one clinical trial has uh, phase zero clinical zero one clinical trial has completed. It looked very good in terms of safety. Our goal is to use the immune mod regulation effect of the fibroblasts uh, so to help reduce. Uh, the inflammation and uh, reduce the propensity of the immune system from attacking uh, the nerve cells. Uh, and our animal model uh, studies have indicated uh, a v uh, that to occur very well. Uh, fibroblasts are able to regulate the immune system to the point that we're even starting to see uh, regeneration uh, of the cells that make that uh, myelin sheet around the neurons. Uh, we've seen that, and, and that's very um, interesting for us, and that's very promising. In our phase uh, one clinical trial that we carry, completed uh, sh showed strong uh, safety, again, this was uh, these cells were, were um, introduced into the patient uh, through infusion, a high number of cells, about a hundred million of the fibroblasts. Uh, so uh, <laughs> it was high, but we th there were no adverse safety events noted. But we 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 also monitored as a secondary outcome uh, efficacy to see if we see any uh, positive impacts uh, on some of the. Um, uh, uh, symptoms that are noted by uh, multi, uh, MS patients, and we did see some positive outcomes. One of the things that we noted that really uh, encouraged us is that none of the patients uh, enrolled in the study uh, had uh, any uh, MS episodes during the course of the monitoring, uh, which, which is encouraging to us. Although we monitored only for about a year, we did not note any MS events in any of these patients that were enrolled. So we're hoping that uh, uh, a we're designing a staggered uh, phase two clinical trial uh, that will certainly monitor 
significantly higher number of patients. And uh, we're, we're looking at, at designing that as well. And for some people, they haven't heard phase zero. You were saying phase zero one. And as uh, my recollection is phase zero is about dosing, not just for safety, which is phase one, but to make sure that it works in the human the way it works in the animal studies. Is that true? Yes. So phase phase zero one is the new terminology. Phase zero. Uh, so that that is certainly the case. So our our intention uh, was that to find basically uh, safety. We were introducing a significantly high number of cells through infusion. We wanted to make sure that the safety was uh, um, uh, was there. Uh, our animal model indications indicated high tolerance for a high number of uh, cells, and this was done both on mice, rabbits, and uh, uh, rats. Uh, so we wanted to make sure that that number uh, also was well tolerated um, by humans as well. You gave this to the MS people in the beginning. Did you have repeat treatments throughout the uh, the year? No, this was a one-time uh, infusion, uh, and, and that's because it was a safety uh, trial. Uh, so one-time infusion, but for our clinical trial, for our, for our phase uh, two clinical trial, we will look at multiple dosing. Uh, as well as uh, uh, a range of doses as, uh, in terms of cell number uh, to see which was more efficacious. Now, you're working on all kinds of things, but I've just picked a third one out that's still in animal studies, yes. uh, and that's diabetic foot ulcers. What are you hoping the fibroblasts will do there? How would it work? Yeah, so uh, again, one of the functions of the fibroblast is its predominant, its prominent role in uh, wound healing. If you look at all stages of wound healing, there's uh, four or five stages, depending on which publications you read. Uh, fibroblasts are involved in every single stage. So our hope is that uh, one of the issues with uh, diabetic foot ulcers is that the reduced efficiency of uh, the immune system of the patients prevents uh, healing. Uh, which causes the, the diabetic foot ulcers, uh, or prevents them from healing properly. So our goal is by using uh, fibroblasts is to aid and accelerate that wound healing process. Um, so not only through immune modulation, but also through the recruitment impact of the fibroblast and its work with other cells uh, in the wound region to regenerate the keratinocytes and epithelial cells uh, required to uh, heal the wounds. And our studies so far on mice has been um, very encouraging. We certainly see an increase, a dramatic increase in uh, wound healing as compared to um, uh, mice that did not receive uh, fibroblasts. We could go on, but let me ask you this. Um, do you need my own fibroblasts where you might treat them or grow them and give them back to me? Or can you give me someone else's fibroblasts? How does that work? Well, the good thing about fibroblasts is that as far as your immune system is concerned, it doesn't elicit a strong response. 
very mild indeed, and much like stem cells that have been shown in publications. So you don't necessarily need your own fibroblasts. We can use fibroblasts from other people and, uh, and it will be tolerated by your immune system. But when necessary for certain indications, we can certainly use your own fibroblasts from a skin punch uh, like a biopsy, uh, and then grow your own cells and then use it. So that's a possibility as well. But in terms of most of the applications that we are working on currently, uh, using uh, fibroblasts from other donors would work just as well. Well, would it be something like the blood bank where you put in, they tell you what type you have and you put it in and then they give you a type batch? Is that is there a matching going on? Yeah, so in terms of the, our donors, we will certainly match their MHC class uh, and the blood type, etc. So we will try our best to have multiple types uh, of MHC class uh, and blood type um, uh, fibroblasts from blood, uh, certain blood types available. But I think for most applications, just uh, a simple fibroblast from any uh, should work fine because it is considered uh tolerogenic, which basically means that it's, uh, it will not elicit a strong response from your immune system. Therefore, it would be tolerated. You know, stem cells, we always hear they can become anything and do within your entire body. Uh, what about the fibroblasts? I mean, they can become anything too as well. Absolutely. Very much like stem cells, uh, uh, fibroblasts can be uh, cultured and grown to become uh, many type of different cells. Uh, for example, stem cells have to be cultured in a specific way for it to be uh, transformed or dif differentiated or changed to, into a certain cell type. The same is true for fibroblasts. So for our clinical indications, we grow them specifically for that clinical indication. So they are fated to become a certain type of cell. So they might become a disc cell, or they might become a part of the myelin shield, or something exactly. multiple sclerosis. So you're kind of directing them. So you don't just have a, a bunch of fibroblasts on the shelf, and we'll just give you some, and everything will turn out fine. Oh, no, absolutely. They have to be cultured and uh, grown uh, appropriately for a certain clinical indication. For example, as you said, for degenerative disc disease, we culture them in a way that mimics uh, the cell growth of uh, cartilage cells uh, so that they would be fated towards becoming uh, uh, becoming um, uh, cartilage cells. For multiple sclerosis, well, the fibroblasts don't pass the blood-brain barrier, so we, we are depending on the immune regulation capability of the fibroblasts. So we culture them to maximize their immune regulation capability. Now, what's next? What are you working on next other than everything? <laughs> Wound care is it's, it's higher on our, on our priorities uh, at the moment, where, as, I, as you mentioned earlier, we're uh, in, uh, in the process of animal trial models, which have looked very uh, intriguing so far. We're also looking at other disorders, uh, for example, eczema, psoriasis, uh, because they're all immune. They have a very strong immune indication. So we're hoping to see if we could utilize the fibroblasts uh, to treat those as well. But we're also looking at uh, 
some aspects of human longevity and quality of life improvements. For example, um, I think uh, uh, working on thymus, right? The thymus gland, uh, it's important in in many regards, and it has, unfortunately, a half-life of about 16 years in humans. 16 years. So that means that uh, as uh, humans get older, their thymus gland is no longer functioning, so they can't, um, they're not as efficient in terms of immune and their immune uh, function, such as uh, getting rid of the cell, free active cells, which might cause autoimmune disorders, or um, uh, specifically migrating the T cells, which are important in in, uh, preventing uh, a lot of pathogens such as viral and bacterial pathogens from causing infections in the elderly, which increases as you get older, right? The propensity of getting infections, the propensity of getting cancer, the propensity of autoimmune disorders get higher, the probability gets higher as you age. And that is uh, strictly uh, as a result of your your thymus gland not functioning as properly. So we're hoping to see if we could reinvigorate uh, the 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 thymus gland so we could uh, improve its functionality uh, at at the older age. You know, I'm always thinking about how uh, we need new names for sports teams. You know, the Panthers and the this and the that. I could just see somebody yes. where the fiber of last, you know, it's like that would just. We would be very happy about that. <laughs> That's good. Yes. And, and it, yeah. And, and fibroblasts, uh, although they're such prevalent in the uh, in all mammalian systems, it's they're not very well known. Uh, stem cells uh, have uh taken the lead in terms of the press and uh, media uh, frenzy. But I think, uh, uh, and of course, all um, successes with stem cells will apply to fibroblasts as well. So we're we're cheering them on. We're one of the <laughs> biggest cheerleaders. That's great. Katya Koja, thank you so much for joining me. I hope you'll come back and, and, and be with us again. Thank you very much, Moira, for having me. And uh, it would be a pleasure to come back anytime you please. I've been speaking with Dr. Hamid Koja, Chief Scientific Officer of Fibrobiologics. More information is available at fibrobiologics.com. That's fibro, F-I-B-R-O, fibrobiologics.com. For Biotech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Anne Noctrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Landcourt.